Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well I'm delighted to share a conversation with you that I had with Reza Merchant who is the founder and CEO of The Collective. Now The Collective is essentially a pioneering co-living brand that has raised over 700 million dollars in funds in a very short period of time to help fuel their growth both nationally and internationally. And Reza is leading a purpose-driven business, as he calls it, and talks a lot about what that means. And this includes going all in, having unwavering belief, as well as having the right advisors and mentors around to learn from and listen to at the same time. And it was perhaps a bit, it was fascinating actually to get a glimpse into how this founder thinks and sees the world, as I'm sure you're about to, to see and agree with me now. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Here we are again, and it's another episode on the uh, Property Voice podcast. We're in the Property Heavyweight series that we're currently into right now, and I'm really pleased to be joined on the on the line today by uh, Reza Merchant. Reza, hi, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No, no, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate that. Um, I think I was kind of we had a little chat before we came on air, and uh, one of the things I was saying is that. I'm not really trying to talk to a lot of people in this particular series, the Property Heavyweight series, that is, but I'm trying to get a bit of a cross-section of people who've come from different backgrounds and, you know, address property in different ways. And uh, I'm very intrigued, actually, in, in how you've come to property and how you're you're succeeding. Um, what, what I normally do at this point in time is just ask if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of, uh, of your own background and backstory and, and how, how you've got to where you are and what you're doing in property right now. Would that be okay if you share that with us? Sure, sure. I'd be delighted to. So I, I guess, um, you know, was born and raised in London, uh, northwest London. Uh, my you know, parents are of Indian origin and my father, you know, actually came to UK um nearly fifty years ago with with fifty pounds and a passport. So um yeah, I think it's useful context because I grew up um you know in a in an environment where um you know I saw him sort of build a business from scratch and you know have to work incredibly hard to you know to um to build his business and to provide for, for us, his family. Um, and so it was kind of second nature to me um, in terms of what it took to uh, to build a successful business. I mean, just the dedication and effort and risk that it takes. Um, so it was all, yeah, I mean, wanting to start a business, I guess, was um, pretty uh, pretty a pretty natural thing. Um, me to go on to and it was actually my last year at LSE where I went to university where 
you know, me and a sort of few friends saw saw this huge need, um, you know, to do something about the housing crisis. You know, we as young people had struggled to find any remotely decent and affordable accommodation in London, mm-hmm. um, and so we, you know, and we we struggled. You know, we went through that entire sort of headache that you know nearly every person in London goes through trying to find the right place, um, you know, dealing with agents that, you know, don't necessarily treat you that well, kind of overcharging with fees, and then, you know, when you see somewhere, it's gone the next the next day, um, and then, you know, once you actually move in, having to deal with all of the hassles and the headaches of setting up your internet, getting your utility bill sorted, um, getting your know, furniture that you're only going to use for a year, and then, you know, more often than not, dealing with a landlord that doesn't, um, isn't really focused on creating a great environment for you um, and getting things fixed quickly. Um, so, you know, we went, went through that sort of hell for two years and just, yeah, first had realized that, okay, something needs to be done here because, you know, this just can't be the status quo. Mm. So that was the, the context as, you know, 21 years old and with £1,600 in the bank, um, and then set up an agency. So that was the lowest barrier to entry business. Um, okay. And that was really a sort of an agency where we would essentially go and try and find fellow students um, their accommodation. And we wanted to improve that service that they went through. And our, our first office was actually in the LSE library. It was, I guess, um, you know, what what made most sense given that we were still in our last year of university mm-hmm. and all, all we needed was a, was a computer and a quiet place to get on with things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and then we, I guess we went from being an agency to actually sort of leasing and subleasing houses so we would typically lease a four-bedroom house turn it into a six-bedroom house and then lease it by the room um really sort of targeting people that couldn't afford to rent their own uh their own flat so they're forced to rent rooms and houses so it became kind of an hmo type of model but you know i think the phrase what rent to rent would be a, a bit of a buzzword would that be fair yeah, I guess that was, you could, yeah, I guess it, essentially it was what people now call rent to rent. Um, and we, I guess what was obvious to us is that if you were earning a middle income in London, like it was impossible to find your own accommodation. So you were forced to go and rent a room um, in what was often sort of illegally converted house share or flat share. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know that was the part of the market that we wanted to serve. That was where we came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the depth of the market was huge because people's only option was to you know go and rent a room in some um, you know substandard, um, just poor quality house share. And so we started to create house shares that were just high quality. So 
you know, good furniture, good artwork, good service. And then very quickly, we started to just increase the size of, of the buildings because we saw that as we did bigger buildings, we were able to create an even better environment and quality of product. Yeah. In the space of a year from 2011 to 2012, we went from doing kind of six bedroom houses to, to 50 bedroom properties. And that was really where the collective brand was born. And it was all about creating the perfect living experience for our, you know, for our end user. So it was at 50 units that the collective brand was, was really born. Um, and we, yeah, we were focused on creating the perfect living experience for our end users. And we really looked at two pillars, right? The first was convenience, the second was community. So we realized that we had to create an offering that made our members' lives as convenient as possible. And yeah. so we wanted to, you know, do everything we could to, to make their lives, yeah, as yeah, as convenient as possible. So we started to do things like changing the linens, cleaning the rooms, um, having an on-site concierge, um, and you know, providing a fully furnished offering so that someone just turned up with a bag and they could start living immediately and they didn't have to worry about anything. Everything was taken care of. And then the second was community. So we saw that you know, the growth in urbanization was meaning that cities were becoming increasingly lonely places yeah. and places with, where it was just much harder to um, to meet people and connect with people. And so we were really focused on creating a sense of community within our, within our buildings. Um, but at 50 units, this was difficult. So the following year, we then started to buy a, you know, pieces of land where we could build from scratch and really create something that didn't exist before. Um, and so our first project was of this scale was the Collective Old Oak. So we launched that in May 2016. It's 546 units, um, about 40,000 square foot commercial space and shared space. And that's really where you know, the product yeah. comes to life. So in addition to the 546 units, we have you know, a great restaurant bar, um, really active lobby with kind of vibrancy music activities going on. We have a cinema room, a games room, a library, a gym, a convenience store, a spa, you know, all of these amazing spaces where um, you really have an opportunity to connect with like-minded people, um, have fun and, and learn and grow. So we have real focus on programming where, you know, we'll typically have about 25 events going on per week with a real focus on, you know, bringing people together and enabling people to, to grow and evolve. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not just, we, we don't just provide a roof over people's heads, but we really uh, provide an environment where people can come and achieve their full potential in mm. life. Um, and, you know, the Old Oak was a, was a big success. Um, it's fully occupied by the end of 2016. And that really paved the way for our international growth. So we now have offices in, in London, uh, Berlin and New York. And we've got projects coming up in all of these regions.
Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I do want to step into there because I think, have you, I don't know if you have sort of invented the term, but you're certainly one of the pioneers in the sort of co-living type of space, uh, certainly of late. I mean, co-living isn't a new concept, of course, community living, community living, I guess that's where the co comes from. Um, you know, people have lived in communities for generations, obviously. But um, I think in terms of, you know, modern day terms and the, the collectives model, it's relatively new, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, like what we, I think what we've created is something that is really appealing to what, what people's needs are moving forward. So, you know, we've always, we've always been creating an environment that, that really doesn't exist. Um, and that, you know, people have to do a lot of convincing, right? Cause when you have to, when you create something that, um, doesn't exist at the moment, um, often people have a hard time understanding how it could possibly work. Mm. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, the status quo just simply isn't good enough. You know, the fact that, Someone on a middle income um, is, is his only option is to go and rent a room in some shitty house. Mm. Excuse my French, um, <laughs> which where the landlord, you know, frankly doesn't care, um, and where it's just a substandard way of living is is just not good enough. And so that that requires people to innovate and to to create something that actually does meet people's needs. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot. So I think I mentioned to you before, I've, I've kind of researched and done, uh, I've written a book on prop tech and cha changing patterns of way people are living, etc. you know, as part of that. And um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the sort of community living, co-living model is not necessarily for every single person, clearly, but it suits certain segments of society really well. And I think, you know, if I understand certainly where your origins were, it's sort of the, um, the sort of, you know, some students who young, you know, working professional, I guess, in, in major cities who are often mobile, can't, as, you, as you quite rightly say, can't necessarily get on the housing ladder. Maybe they live, you know, they're, they're so, you know, living sing as singles or, or perhaps, I don't know if you have couples actually, but, um, it, you know, that's certainly one segment. Um, and, and, and maybe get your thoughts on other segments that might be appropriate for this type of model as well. But in other words, it's a kind of a niche. It's not mass market, is it? It's, a, it's for certain segments of the society that we have today, and we're going to probably have increasing numbers of in the future because of house prices and lack of uh, supply, for example. Yeah, look, our, our belief is that it's not, it's not just a specific niche because actually, um, mm -hmm. you know, 25% of our residents are over the age of 35, number one. And we have, so we have people between the ages of 18 to 16. Uh, number two, you're not forced to constantly be interacting with people. So everyone has their private space and people choose to, to engage when they want to. So it's, you know, it's not a it's not forced at all. Like people have the freedom to either choose their own space or choose to kind of spend whatever time they'd like in, in the common spaces, interacting with others. Um, and, and finally, I, you know, we believe that every single 
human being on this planet um, requires human connection yeah. from the moment they're born to the moment they die, which is why loneliness is such a huge issue in this day and age, you know, yeah. particularly in, in larger cities. You know, London has now appointed a loneliness minister. That's how big a problem it is. And loneliness is a bigger killer than cancer and smoking and obesity. So creating an environment where people have the option to connect with others and really find a sense of belonging, um, we feel is, is, is appealing to, to everyone. No, I think I think you're right, and, and uh, I mean, see, I was interested to hear that you've got residents, if you like, of, a, of quite a wide wide age group. I think you know sometimes going to London, you, you can sit on the you can sit on the tube, for example, and not not speak a word, you know, to anyone in a full carriage, <laughs> you know, in this sort of commute. Well, any time, frankly, unless it's about eleven thirty when people have got a few drinks in them, maybe. But um, you, the, it, is, it can be a lonely old place. I mean, I, I've seen some of the research that you're referring to about uh, loneliness being a bit of a killer, bit of a killer, a big killer. Um, and so having, you know, access to social networks, I don't mean online, I mean real, you know, people. Uh, it strikes me as being a very good thing to do. And of course, the second thing that you're bringing together there is that you're, you're collecting people together literally in, in a more affordable environment. Um, so people can't afford a a one-bedroom flat with whatever it is, four four rooms, um, bathroom, kitchen, lounge, one have a separate dining room and a bedroom. So that, that's an awful lot of money in, in these large cities. So uh, from what I understand of your model, you've got the, the space, your own private space, but you've got lots of uh, shared space as well, haven't you? You've got breakout areas for work. You've got um, events areas, various services, and as you say, restaurants and shops on site. So it is a, a kind of a hub feel, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the idea is that there is, you know, a, a wide range of, of shared spaces mm. which are there for, you know, a wide range of needs, right? So mm. whether you want some relaxation time, you know, there's a spa, you want to work, there's a library, a, co a kind of workspace, dedicated workspaces, lobby, um, and then if you want to have fun, there's you know, kind of you know, music venues, uh, restaurants, bars, uh, and if you want exercise, there's always a gym. So it's really about creating a wide variety of spaces uh, which can be used, you know, whatever your mood and need is in a particular moment. Yeah, and I was thinking it through because, you know, I've been thinking, I'm, I'm currently preparing for an article, which is slightly overdue, but it's, um, it's, it's um, YPN, the magazine I write for, Your Property Network, featuring her HMOs, Houses of Multiple Occupation, this month, and I was asked in my column whether I wanted to say something about that, and I was really thinking about that. And I think um, I was thinking about the changes in, you know, flat shares to house shares to H, formal license HMO, HMOs, rather, to um, you know, moving right through to the spectrum of co-living that, that you're describing, and I, I see you know, and, and I think the other thing that perhaps goes with that is not necessarily the way people are living, but the way that people want to pay and contract for that type of living as well. In other words, they don't necessarily want to be tied into a six-month you know minimum commitment, a short short-hold tenancy. 
people are perhaps a bit mobile, the digital nomads around, for example, or just getting variety. So is that another element of what you're doing with the collective? Have you got you know, different types of uh, commercial model? Yeah, so we believe that this whole concept of a 12-month lease in one place is, is getting more and more outdated and, you know, again, like just not meeting people's needs. Mm-hmm. People want flexibility, people want freedom. So we do offer everything from one night to 365 nights in terms of length of stay, mm-hmm. catered to that need. Uh, we also see a future whereby, uh, you know, the global network that we're building will give people a global access to housing. So if you're a member of the collective, you have access to housing in London, in New York, in Berlin, in Frankfurt, um, in Miami, you know, in kind of cities all over the world, um, because that's what people need. Like we, honestly, we, I think we're moving away from being citizens of a particular country mm. to being citizens of the world, because technology and travel um, means that we can increasingly be anywhere and still be functioning and sort of. And living our lives and actually that the, the experiencing different cultures and different places is something that i think is hugely inspiring people totally agree i mean i travel a lot myself so um in fact when you just said one day minimum i made a real note of that <laughs> you know because for example this this recording i'm i'm sat on a laptop with a headset i'm speaking to you from a different country um, and to different time zone, and and here we are, you know. And so I could hop. And next, what is it? Next week I'm off to Lisbon. Next month I'm off to New, not New York actually, but Dallas. So it'd be great for me to carry on my business in all of those locations. And you know, usually it's a hotel and a coffee shop type of environment. So I think I know that I'm just that's just one avatar perhaps of your audience. I think you're right. There's, there's the changing nature of how people live, the global citizenship, as you referred to. The perhaps before, perhaps maybe back backtracking a, a second. I think was, did I write? Was I right in hearing you said you started effectively with was it sixteen hundred pounds back in the day? Yeah. Yeah, so sixteen hundred pounds as a student. I, well, I don't know if you were still a student or just towards the end of university to having, you know, actually now plans for thousands of units across, you know, at least three countries from what I've been reading. It sounds like you've got more more cities, if not countries, uh, planned. Um, what about the sort of the, the stretch and the entrepreneurial reach and the finances that goes with that kind of growth? I'm intrigued with that. Yeah, so, you know, we we've actually raised over $700 million today to fund our, our projects mm. and our business. Um, so, you know, it's obviously been a, yeah, quite an intense journey and period to be able to deliver on our aspirations. Um, and it, you know, it just requires like constant persistence. You know, it's, um, and I, I, I think we're just at the start of our journey. Uh, you know, we're really at, at the sort of 
very early stages of, of what we are capable of of delivering you know as a, as a business as a, and as people because ultimately a business is made up of people and people are the most important part of a business yeah i mean you 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 sort of three quarters of the way to unicorn status and not you know because you've probably done this over a couple of funding rounds i'm sure but um that's that would be a nice marker in the ground i'm sure i don't know if that's part of your plan to, to uh to go public but i think the cap property especially on the scale that you're looking at is a very capital intensive industry I mean, there are other ones which are also capitally intensive, but um, I think when people like myself who are property investing in property, you have to get certain chunks of money together to do what you do. But obviously, what you've done is you've taken a concept and you've gone out and raised funds, I guess, from a variety of different sources. And I'm I'm intrigued about how you went about raising the funds, actually, because you would have convinced a number of people to back your vision, no doubt. Yeah, so, you know, fundraising has been a key part of what we've done. And, you know, we've, I guess, managed to find investors that, that really believe and buy into what we're, what we're creating. Mm-hmm. So I think the fundamentals are very strong. So, yeah, that's been our, our real focus. So, I mean, just, you know, perhaps drilling down, if, if people are listening to this now and thinking to themselves, well, how, how do I become investable or bank, bankable? Are there, are there some traits that you need to develop and, and hone? Yes, yeah, so I would say that I think you need, number one, um, you need to have a 100% belief in what you're doing because people can see and feel that. And even if what you're doing has risks, if they see true, sincere belief from you, then I think that goes a long way because you need that in order, you know, there you'll get a lot of no's and a lot of people questioning what you're doing, not believing in what you're doing. And it's that self-belief that will take you through, um, you know, those tough periods and also ultimately be the be the point that gets people inspired and brought in. You know, because it's not just investors, but if you want to build a serious business, you've got to convince people to come on come with you on that journey. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to convince them more often than not to to take pay cuts, right? Based on where what they're what they may be getting in a larger corporate. And again, that comes down to belief. Um, I think I think having a strong sense of purpose is really important. So, like, why are you doing what you're doing? What is the fundamental driver? And does that come from an authentic and pure place? Because again, people people will see that and feel that. And I think in this day and age, like people are very much drawn to purpose-driven businesses. Yeah. Because I think the, I think people have come to the realization, or people, more people, increasingly more people come to the realization that actually, the thing that is most fulfilling in life is to have an impact, a positive impact on people's lives, on the world in general. So if you if you're doing that as a business, then you know I think you're going to just attract better 
and hungrier people that are there for the right reasons. Yeah, a lot of that is um, how do I put it? It's it's sort of it's on the softer side. It's intangible, right? Belief and purpose. I, I, I'm not doubting them, by the way. I'm, I'm just, you know, it's there. You can't touch them. It's esoteric, you know. Um, and and uh, I was it, that for me just seems like um, almost something magical, you know. You've seen a lot of the. Uh, there's a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people come into the market at the moment who've got those sorts of visionary ideas and they're it's almost like a movement isn't it it's uh you know the the sharing economy with the likes of uber for example um you know changing that landscape airbnb is probably going to come to the market this year as well don't own any properties any hotels um uh, but just trying to change and disrupt and you know just but for the good bring bring about how you know change in the way that we live and the Airbnb story is also quite sounds a bit similar to yours in a way because it was born out of a frustration, frustrating experience, perhaps. So that that possibly speaks towards your purpose, maybe I don't know that you know you saw problems that you were experiencing, uh, your peers were experiencing, and then maybe you decided to do something about that. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. I think that's often like a very powerful sort of reason to start something is that you experience the pain yourself mm. yeah, exactly experience the pain yourself and the I think the other thing though when you talk about belief and the 100% belief and I think I read that in some of your comments elsewhere as well so um, you know it's obviously a repeating a recurring theme that you have but how would you differentiate between you know blind faith or um, faith, belief, and you know, um, being de- de- delusional, if you like. How how do you know the difference? Well, I think I think you have to have clarity, right, on um, what your end goal is, and 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 how you're going to get there. And I guess uh, faith that you will find you'll be able to find the solutions that you need to and achieve the things that you need to to get to the end goal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really important to set clear goals, mm-hmm. um, especially as you grow as a business. Uh, so to be able to set clear goals and then chalk out, you know, as clear a plan as possible on how you get to that end goal. Because, you know, an end goal... An ambitious end goal can often sound scary, but at the end of the day, it's always broken down into many little things that need to get done in order to achieve that goal, which is the plan. And so talking out a clear plan, um, and you know, even if every part of the plan isn't 100% nailed down, um, but you know, just know, kind of knowing the plan mm-hmm. is, is important. And then that way, like, you just increase the chances significantly of achieving really ambitious goals. And sure. And with your own goals, did you start out with a massive vision, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal, so as they call it, or, or has it evolved as time has gone on? I would say it definitely evolved. So when we started the business, we didn't have the vision that we have in mind now. Mm-hmm. It was very much organic. 
an opportunity led. Mm -hmm. But as time has gone on, um, I guess we, you know, started to develop and define a clearer vision of where we want to go. But at the beginning, it was very much, um, yeah, it was very much sort of more ad hoc. And we didn't have a clear picture of, you know, we had short-term goals, which were like project-led, mm -hmm. um, and we just took opportunities that came along. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fine to evolve organically at an early stage, um, but then once you get to a certain size, you then really need to have like the clear plan so that you know you can you can get people to follow you because you need that right build a build a large business you can no longer do everything yourself yeah i mean that's interesting i was thinking to myself that you know you you kind of i often talk to people in terms of goals and strategy as as fix and then flex which you you did you fixed short-term goals and then you flexed obviously of, as opportunities of emergent as you say organically but then you fixed again and that's that's interesting in itself isn't it you fixed then flex then fixed again so that you can get the you can lock down the vision you can attract the right people and people to fulfill all sorts of roles as stakeholders in your business i'm sure um so then you you kind of lock down that vision once it becomes certain so you i guess what you're saying is there was a bit of organic growth and fluidity in the earlier stages before you kind of locked down into the area that you're heading in now and if I read between the lines, you're probably not going to divert too far away from that in the short term. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's exactly. And, and I think having, you know, you don't really have to have a 10-year plan, but at least having a kind of three-month, six-month, nine-month, and 12-month plan is, is helpful. Mm. And then beyond that, things will evolve naturally. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And, and did you do all this alone or did you get some sort of um, support along the way from advisors, mentors, etc.? Yeah, look, I think it's really important to have um, people, experienced people around you that can that can advise you and mentor you. Mm -hmm. uh, because why, why, why learn, why figure everything out for yourself when there are other people that have been through something similar, you know, which, which can shortcut a lot of things. So we, we've, we've always had advisors uh, as a business that can, you know, really sort of help us think through, you know, some of the more complex problems that we're going through. Mm -hmm. So I'd highly recommend that, you know, you surround yourself by, you know, more experienced people. Yeah, and I think it, interestingly for you in particular, um, if you're if you're you know uh, a pioneer for want of a better description, some of the, you may even be ahead of those advisors. So, but I guess you choose them for you know certain reasons, like advising on structuring the company, advising on raising funds or, or equity, exactly, etc. So, uh, so you're leveraging to, to to scale from the expertise of other people along the journey. You think that'd be right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And, yeah. you know, advisors are there to give their opinions. Mm -hmm. and, and, but, you know, it's an opinion that you can take into account and use to, to form your own view. So you don't have to listen to it word for word, but I think it's very helpful to at least inform your key decisions and opinions. 
Yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, actually, one thing I did read about, uh, I don't know if this is true, because I'm just reading things, aren't I? So maybe you can clarify for me, Reza. But, you know, when I understood you, uh, one of the collective properties, if it wasn't Old Oak, is it right that you actually persuaded your parents to provide the home as security or for funding? Is that right? Yeah, so we took a, a kind of bridge loan out, secured against, my family home and you know that I guess that was really because we had a hundred percent belief in what we were doing mm. um, and we were with you know we were willing to take a very you know obviously on the on paper a, a big risk but it was one that we never had any doubt would you know kind of come into play so I think what that demonstrates is you know if you believe in something like be willing to to put everything you have behind it, and then you can, that's the way to really guarantee success, I believe. Reza, what, what would be great to hear at this stage is, is just some general advice and tips, maybe, maybe any hacks that you yourself have learnt along the way that you can translate to our audience who might be looking to do something similar, even on a smaller scale. Sure, so number one, I would, um, you know, to my earlier point, like find find experienced people that have been through something similar and you know bring them on board as advisors um, as mentors so that you can shortcut a lot of the a lot of the the things that you're going to go through because if someone else has gone through something then you might as well learn from that and then figure out the optimal way to to get things done as quickly as possible and it's you know and we've had that historically but you know I think looking back there were definitely points when probably should have um, you know kind of seek more advice in certain areas so I would I would definitely kind of focus on that number two I think you know don't go halfway if you want to do something like go all in and Put, every, put everything you have in terms of energy, time, um, and even like financial kind of financial ability, like behind something. Because I think one, like people, if people see you're going all in, they'll have even more belief in you. Whether it's people that want to work for you or, or want to invest in you, but I think it's also a, an an amazing feeling to to be so invested in something, for me, it's certainly brought, brought the best out of me. And it's really pushed me and driven me, um, you know, to, to, to really achieve my full potential. And then, finally, I would say, really understand the, the deeper purpose and meaning behind why you want to do something, and why you believe in something, and, and make that clear to people. And the people understand, like, what are your fundamental drivers uh, behind why you're doing what you're doing? It's a great advice there. I think, you know, conscious of your time. Um, if people want to know more about you or the collective, where can they go to find out more? Uh, the best place to go on is our website, which is www.thecollective.com. Brilliant. I am conscious of your time, so I'm probably going to just uh, – 
close for now. I do want to thank you so much for sharing. Uh, probably could have talked a bit, bit more, um, maybe another opportunity another day. But um, uh, in the meantime, I'll maybe check out a one night stay in the collective in London next time I'm over. <laughs> so, Reza, yes, thank, thanks for sharing today. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I always find it interesting to talk to founders of businesses, especially ones that are growing fast and particularly ones who are breaking new ground and pioneering, as it were. Uh, it was really interesting to hear Reza talk about his, his background, of course. Um, whilst he's born in the UK, he's from a, an Indian family originally, and his father, I think he talked about having 50 quid and a passport in his pocket and started a business from a very young age. So to him, running a business was quite a, a natural thing for him to consider doing because that was the environment that he grew up with uh, when he was younger. And so perhaps he doesn't see uh, things in the same way. Uh, certainly at the early stages, he even talked about having 1,600 quid, which is I don't know if it's inflation adjusted, probably isn't, but, you know, having a, a relative small amount of money to invest in a business with his uh, student letting agency uh, when, he, when he left uh, LSE, London School of Economics. Uh, and, and I think, you know, he also talked about the, the pain uh, being a motivator that drove him to find a solution to the problem that he and his uh, peers, if you like, at university were experiencing. I thought that was all really interesting, the context of how, you know, the collective was formed. But then, of course, you've got, you know, from, from an agency to what is essentially now known as rent-to-rent -rent HMOs, a room rental kind of marketplace, moving from, you know, five, six-bedroom types of property up to 50 and up to 500, which is exactly what he's done, uh, and then adding into it other amenity space, service offerings, community, um, uh, you know, and social events, etc., into what is now the co-living model was was really fascinating and of course he's done that really quickly um, and I do know that he's got advisors around him he talks about that quite a lot actually but he also talked about taking on board what you know having advisors on board but actually having your own judgment I think that was a key point um, so that was really fascinating wasn't it with the with the conversation now um, 700 million dollars are in the presence in in London Berlin and New York it doesn't go that far um, does it? You know, it, property is a very expensive business to get into. But we can all learn, I think, uh, a thing or two. And in fact, I indeed am learning a thing or two from Reza and what he and sim uh, people similar to him are doing. And I think actually the HMO model is probably going to migrate more towards a kind of a co-living model. So more to what the collective are doing. Don't all have to have gyms and, you know, zip car rental and laundry services in our HMOs. But if you just think about what co-living really means, convenience and community were the two big things that, uh, that Reza spoke about. And I think um, that's a really important consideration. He talked about loneliness being a big killer, of course, in this country. And so this community feel, I think a lot of HMOs have got, uh, they're affordable and they've got a degree of services or you know convenience, if you want to call it that, with them. But there's, there's not really, even though people share a house, there's not a lot of community. So there's not events that are taking place. There's not a way to integrate people into, into the community, as it were. And if you think about, you know, the collective with its 500 rooms in, in London, 
it's kind of like what an old what a village would have been in the olden times uh, except it go, it's vertical instead of horizontally built that's how i'm thinking about it so in a vertical village you'd have everything within a within the sort of city walls or the village walls or whatever you want to call it but in the collective you have it within the four walls of the uh, of the building anyway so we did talk quite a lot about the concept but i think it's really important that we did dwell on that because obviously he's a visionary and is uh, is set about uh, on this on this journey with as he calls it unwavering belief in what he's doing and and not only that did he have unwavering belief but he had to persuade his parents to put down uh, their uh, home as security on on a loan at one point in time imagine that conversation and then obviously to convince investors to go uh, and support them to the tune of 700 million dollars and of course then as he mentioned to go and persuade people to follow him in the vision um, earning less money than they could do in other uh, places so this conviction, this belief, this sense of purpose um, was very, very strong, wasn't it, in, in what he was talking about? Um, but born out of this pain, experiencing pain, and then finding, looking for a solution. And of course, a lot of inventors and creators and pioneers, they're trying to find solutions. But we're all inventors and creatives and pioneers, really. We're, just, we're not necessarily making uh, massive uh, solutions to the world's problems, but we can apply that on a on a sort of slightly smaller basis. I think for sure. We did talk about the difference in potentially belief and delusion, um, and I think he, the, the way Reza explained that was to try and find clarity, as he called it, of the solution to realise your end goal. So you may have a vision, but if you don't have a clear pathway as to how you're going to realize that vision, then that could be the difference between belief and delusion. And a lot of people say, I want to do it, I want to do it. How are you going to do it? I don't know, I'm just going to do it. That's more delusional. Whereas if you've got a clear plan and a step-by-step process, then it's more realistic that you're going to be able to achieve your, your goals and your vision. And, um, you know, Reza talked about the idea of being a little bit fluid and organic in the early stages, but then to fix as you're getting people to follow you. And that was a really interesting distinction for me, actually, when I heard it. And I've heard it back as well before recording this point. Uh, I often talk about fix and flex. And I myself have fixed and flexed. I have fixed my strategy and then I flexed it later on as my situation has changed. Um, but Reza introduced this point of fixing again and not really changing it. So now that was really interesting. So in terms of goals, they can be flexed, but in terms of direction and purpose, ultimately, once you've figured it out and you really understand it, perhaps it shouldn't change. Uh, But that's an interesting concept, wasn't it? I really like what he said about having support around you. Um, Having mentors and advisors around you. uh, Reza's a young man um, and, you know, he was fresh out of university when he started his business. He had his uh, role model in parenting, parents, but he, I know he brought people into the business to support him as well. People who've been there and done it as it were. But he did also make the distinction of having his own mind and his own thinking. So the supermarket approach, you know, take what you need and leave the rest behind. So having good advisors is essential, but don't necessarily follow them blindly, was what he said. In terms of tips and advice, he talked about trying to find people who've been through something similar. But I think, uh, which I've just talked about, of course, but don't go halfway, go all in, as he called it, uh, all in with energy, time, finances, and so on. 
and it's uh, you know it's it's amazing to be so invested in something as he put as he calls it and uh, which has helped uh, him to achieve his full potential that's there with his words he feels that he's achieved his full of, uh, potential by being all in and not being you know going halfway and of course then understanding what the deeper purpose and meaning as to why we're doing something but to be able to communicate and articulate that to other people so that they can understand, not only understand it, but also follow it and buy into it. And in many cases, invest into it. So I hope you can see there's a lot of parallels um, to us as property people as well. We don't have to have the vision of being an, uh, a literal pioneer and changing the way we live uh, in this world. But we can make small changes and apply many of the principles that Reza has talked about uh, in, in the share with us today. In our everyday, you know, pr property journey, can't we? We can learn and we can apply and we can bring others on board. We can have a great sense of conviction, have a purpose and strong, strong and wavering belief that enables us to attract investment, enable us to achieve our goals and plans. And I think that was the biggest takeaway of all. But if you do have that even bigger vision, then uh, you can obviously see what it takes because, um, I don't think Reza went as far as to say it's a full-time job raising money, but I, I know that, you know, it, it kind of is, well, whether it's his full-time job, but I'm sure he's got people around who are helping him do that, but that's going to be a constant quest. And as you get further and further into property, and especially if you want to grow to a significant extent, then raising money is going to be one of the key attributes that we all need to have. And it's something that we're always going to have to be thinking about. So there we go. I, I thought it was fascinating. It was an interesting conversation because um, Reza's kind of a different type of personality profile, perhaps, from some of the guests that we've had on. So a slight balance there uh, or different, different perspective, different take. I hope you got a lot out of it, as indeed I did. There we go. I want to wrap it up for now. Um, if you want to talk about anything from today's show or talk about property investing more generally, you know, as always, you can email me, podcast at propertyvoice.net, and I'd be more than happy to hear from you. Of course, the show notes are going to be over at the website, uh, which is thepropertyvoice.net. Um, and I guess uh, probably for this week, I was going to talk about an event I ran, but I'll probably leave that now until next week. But uh, if you can hear a bit of hoarseness in my voice, it's because I had eight back-to-back one-to-ones and a, and, a, and a mastermind dinner event last night and a lunch appointment as well. So I'm a little bit hoarse today. So probably is as well if I leave that until another week. But um, check out my social media and you'll hear more about that. And maybe you want to come to another event. I'll leave it for now. And I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's Ciao Ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.